G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. Good evening all and tonight we have with us Tony Gillahan from TG Outdoors. So good evening Tony, how are you? I'm great, thank you very much. That's great and what about yourself Ian, how are you travelling? Oh not bad. Looking at another cold, weary night up here. Although not as cold as Tony by the looks of it, with his, yeah. with his beanie on. So <laughs> no, no, we're all good here, Mark. Looking forward to this conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm sweating, but then again, it's it's October in Brisbane, so that's pretty normal. Yeah. So tonight, yeah, Tony, what we'd really like to um, pick your brain about is firstly your own hunting experiences, and, and a lot of that can be seen on TG Outdoors. But also, I suppose more importantly, we'll, we'll get there eventually, is hunting public land in Victoria, um, especially for, uh, you know, us wayward Queenslanders who, you know, it's a fair old journey to make to make, to make make the commitment to get down there and giving them some pointers so that they're, they're at least got a chance to see a deer. So we'll, but we'll get there uh, eventually. So let's let kick off. So tell us a little about your own hunting experiences and how you got to be um, Tony from TG Outdoors. Oh, well, I sort of started shooting pests, like pest controlling and that with, with the old man at a very early age, just with the air rifle and 22, and then progressed onwards and upwards. I think it was about when I was like 17 or 18, I started to get right into photography and I was actually going out, I had access to a property and I was going out trying to photograph Samba while my brother and his mates were, they were trying to shoot them and I was coming back with these photos of the deer and they're like, what the hell, man? Like, we've been looking for these with the rifle and you're out taking photos of them. Oh, you're that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after that, I I think I was about 18, I just decided, right, oh, it's time to go shoot a deer and, yeah, same thing. It was like my first hunt on that same property that I was taking photos of them on. And yeah, just got myself up into a little gully and shot a little stag on my my first sort of samba hunt. So it was it just kicked on from there. Really, I just sort of fell in love with it, and it's you know nearly every weekend since since I was eighteen, I've sort of been in the bush. Wow! So how did that translate into TG Outdoors? Uh, when I was a, oh, I don't remember when I sort of started YouTube. It was probably when i was like 21 or 22 so maybe yes seven years ago or so i just i sort of started carrying a camera around because i at the time there wasn't a heap of sort of samba hunting content out there and i sort of thought that i was in a position where i could get some good samba content out there and that was pretty much where it stemmed from and i sort of really like the challenge of trying to video the shots and you know yeah basically just get samba content that not many people were getting mm. and I, I think some of the earlier stuff and I, I might have this wrong but some of the earlier stuff i saw of yours you're actually hunting with a bow as well Is that yeah that was that was like a big challenge because 
think back then, I don't, I don't know if I even recall back then of anyone sort of filming himself shoot a sample with the bow, and that that just became a challenge of mine. So I was out multiple times a week just chasing Sambran with the bow and me bloody cameras and until I got it done. So what was the bow set up? Because I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a that's certainly setting yourself a high bar. Uh, it was a very cheap entry level PSC stinger. Okay, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, nothing like not spending a lot of money to do something really difficult. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so, and more recently now, I see you're hunting with a dog. So you've gone, you, you, it's a, you've got yourself a, what looks like a wire hair. Um, it's a wire hair um, pointer, isn't it? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, Remy. She's a wire hair pointer. That's it. Hmm. So, Where did she come from? Uh, she came from my good mate John Nichols in Mansfield. Yeah. And so, we do I mean, together. So, yeah, we do a lot of hunting together. So Remy, is, Remy's mum, Velvet, he's got her. And, oh, yeah. So, yeah, we sort of tee up hunts, and they're the mother and daughter get to hunt together, so they love it. Yeah, well. So what's hunting, I mean, you know, so you're using that dog primarily what as a as how you I mean well, okay. So how are you primarily using the dog to hunt? So is it a sight dog? What's it doing for you? It depends on the, the hunt I'm doing, because some some of the places I go are, are more sort of long range orientated. So I'm sitting there glassing and the dog isn't doing as much. If I get a deer, then she'll help find it after the shot. But bush stalking and that, she's primarily wind scenting. So pretty much just trying to work the wind, have her out in front of me. Like she normally hunts maybe 20, 30 metres in front of me. And if she picks up the wind scent of a deer, she'll start leading me in. And if it's a, if it's a good or a decent stag, it's in trouble. Or if I need meat and it's a hind, it's in trouble. <laughs> it's a great way to do it. And how, how old is the dog? Uh, she's just about to turn six. Okay, she's, and she, how long she's been hunting with you? Uh, since she was eight weeks old. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So it's been quite a pairing. Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm a I'm a mad keen um, uh, indicating dog hunter. I, I I didn't done the same thing. I I decided that the next stage in my hunting life uh, was going to be with a dog. I needed to wait until you know some of the family pets that we had um, you know passed on and. It was time for me to get another one and it just worked out the timing was great and there's a local breeder up here who um very well known actually in the in the Dratha or the G gwp circles and um i think she she may have had an issue with her one of her um, dams and needed to offload pups quickly so i got a very good dog for a fairly cheap price because of a medical condition um but yeah i put her through the Big game indicating, big game indicating dog blueprint. Yep. That, uh, Paul Michaels over in New Zealand put together. It's it's a game changer. It, it really is an amazing thing to hunt with an indicator. Um, but I get your point. When you're long range hun hunting, they're um they're a bit underfoot sometimes, aren't they? They're a little bit <laughs> agitated and wanting to get out there and do things, but you don't let them because you know that's their job. But um, <laughs> it's such a different experience hunting with a dog. Oh, 100 percent. I love it. Mm. So, so how does that work then? I mean, for, for you know, so you've got the dog out front. It's twenty meters, and it's it's wind scenting. 
So it obviously picks up a scent. It then does it stop? Does it then move towards what 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 happens? What do you see? Uh, she will normally start working towards where she's getting the scent from. Yeah. But uh, that can vary on a lot of things as well. Like, depends on the wind currents and stuff like that. But yeah, generally she'll start leading in, and also the bush conditions. Because sometimes where the deer are, I don't really want to go into a lot of the time, especially mm -hmm. middle of the day where they're bedded. Sometimes it's not real nice in there, so it's it's probably very difficult for the dog. Sometimes it's conflicting. Sometimes I'm following her, and then other times I'm wanting to go elsewhere or further into a system or whatever I'm doing. So she's just, I think she just deals with me. <laughs> yeah, so, and what, and so the dogs picks up a scent and starts working. So obviously the, 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 the way the dogs literally traveling changes. So it becomes, I suppose, I'm assuming it, it becomes more with greater intent. You know, it, 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 yeah, definitely. Yeah. So and and if it was a if it's good condition, so you are following it rather than saying no, no, I don't want to go in there. I know you found me one, but I want you to find me another one. Find me a better one that's like next to the truck or something. Yeah. <laughs> See if you can find one near a freezer. <laughs> so <laughs> dip it over in. So it's it's wind scenting for you now. It's it's on. It's it's now got a scent. Um, does it point? What is it? How do you? How do you go from, okay, there's something there to, okay, I'm on? When she's close, she'll just stop and will not move any further. Okay. And that's, yeah, when I know there's something very close and then I've just got to find it. Yeah. yeah that's half the challenge. You're looking yes, at the dog. I'm assuming you've got that problem where invariably you're looking at the dog and going, but you know that's not what you're hunting. You're hunting this thing that the dog can see or knows. But there must yeah. be that period of time where you go, okay. So what are you looking at? What what is here? So there must be you know because I mean it's that old saying you know that old problem. You go hunting with someone and you you see something. You go there it is and they kind of go where what is? What are you yeah. And I mean you can do that. You can do it to your mates and have an argument. But I'm sure the dog that's even harder to somehow figure out what it's looking at or what does it see because i suppose it, it doesn't necessarily have to see it it's it knows just confirms that something is very very close a hundred percent yeah i've got a i've got actually got a video on youtube where i shot it's like a 28 inch stag and remy wind centered me in for a couple hundred meters and she just stopped on this little lookout and i knew that it was close and i couldn't see it and eventually like i, I probably spent 10 minutes looking for it in the binos and it was only about 20 meters away and it was just yeah, tucked down in this little spot and it eventually stood up and yeah i got a couple of shots into it so but yeah for the, half the battle is finding them especially you know middle of the day when they're bedded they're very difficult to see mm, yeah. i tend to find um i don't know whether remy's the same but uh, my dog missy um so the scent that you were talking about before is, you know when they're going backwards and forwards is wind rafting so they're catching the wind on the scent Usually yep. they then hone into a direct scent. Once they get close enough, they figure out where it's coming from. They get onto a direct scent, which will eventually find ground scent. Once they've got ground scent, they're on the way, and there's not a lot that the animal's going to do to stay away from the dog at that point unless mm -hmm. it's on the run. Um, Missy, though, sh she won't go on full lock point until she's got smell and visuals. Yeah. Um, I, I used to think that she went on point 
because she was close and she sensed she was close. But I later found out I just couldn't see what she was looking at. Yeah. And she only goes on full point when she has visuals as well as, as scent. And I found that that's very similar to a lot of people's dogs. I don't know if you find it similar whether you put that correlation together yet. Six years, I, I reckon you probably have. But um, uh, Remy doesn't actually, like she doesn't generally do a full lock sort of traditional point, but she's still got very easy to read body language like when, she, when she's close to an animal. Yeah, I'd suggest that every dog's got their full point. That's always different. Some yeah. of them are, I've got another dog. I've got a Mastiff. And is that retarded? He's not a hunting dog. He's a dumb mastiff. Like he's a French mastiff. And uh, you know, I like, I like. <laughs> I took him out looking for deer one day, and you know, we're out there, and I could see them. And he's like, "What the fuck is going on with my hand? Like, I don't, like the body's taken over. He doesn't know what's going on at all. There's this instinct in behind them that just makes this stuff happen. But you know, when you're getting a, a purpose-bred dog that's good at it, um, they have what you know. I, I call Missy's full lock. You know, it's yep. not a traditional in the magazine, you know, forward point, whatever. Yeah. It's the body language I recognise. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I took my Labrador when he was much younger, hunting a couple of times in state forests and, you know, literally untrained because, you know, but I had him on a lead. We had made a little, you know, blaze orange coat for him. But that's what would happen. You know, he'd be just kind of – and then it was just like this sine wave. He'd just get more and more – and then when we got these goats, um, it was really weird because he was almost calm until the goat went down and then he just went like he went. He didn't go crazy, but it, it, was, it was very hard to describe what happened to him when, it, when that goat went down. It was, you know, he just he was just got so in, he just wanted to eat it, basically, you know, yeah, pluck all the hair out of it. Yeah, I got a photo. It was in a magazine where I've got him in one. You know, I'm kind of like got the goat and the rifle, and I'm kneeling down, and I'm kind of smiling and like, you know, this arms on full lock, trying to hold him in this kind of seated position so I get a photo of him. He just, <laughs> he just, you know, that that instinct just kicked in, and we did it a couple of times. Yeah. But it's something I've never really. I, I once hunted with um. Tim and I, when we first started, got back into hunting, we went on this um, uh, a guided hunt. It was a week-long guided hunt for pigs up in North Queensland. And it's a bit of a joke between us because um, we call it the, uh, the world's best farm stay because we hunted basically 12-hour a day, seven hours, seven days straight and didn't see a single pig. And <laughs> this guy was hunting with um, English pointers you know, and I spent a lot of time with these pointers and they would just basically, you know, be way off in front. And, you know, he said, wait to hear and baying and then we're on, but they never bayed. So we never got to, never got to, uh, got to see them in action, but they, um, you know, they would be three, 400 metres in front of us. Yeah. So, and yeah. it was really a sound thing, almost like a, you know, a driven type hunt situation. And in England, I've, I've shot with people who got dogs, but again, they use them for different things like retrieving and so on and so forth. I did have a guy who had a dog that he's used for driving too. And there is a couple of dogs that they breed that they prefer for deer over there as well. It's a German breed. Um, so there's, you know, it's, it's quite interesting for me not being around that kind of hunting um seeing different people hunt with dogs and of course what they do in victoria with the hound hunters 
that looks like that looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, I've been out a few times, and it's it's definitely uh, there's a lot more that goes into it than probably mm. realise. Oh yeah, it looks like it's a it looks like a, a pretty um a, a, you know a, a, a pretty big event. Yeah, definitely. All those yeah. people organise, get them all out and all that stuff, and having it. I think yeah, I think the dogs chasing you know driving the deer is probably the smallest part of it. I think it's getting everyone sorted out and getting it happening. There's a lot of organisation there. It does. It looks like it. Seems it, like yeah. an enormous. And I, and I, it's a real lifestyle, isn't it? And I'm, oh, I'm yeah. assuming that's why it's a lifestyle because you know you, you there's eight, ten guys out there with rifles. You want to make sure you know exactly who's who in the zoo and, and you trust everyone. Um, so definitely. Oh, even just you know the the blokes that have the dogs. You know they might own ten to fifteen dogs and looking after them and they they hunt every single weekend. So yeah. rain, hail, or shine, they're out camping. So it's mm. definitely a credit to them. <laughs> yeah. So um, and they've got every year they have to get their dogs accredited, don't they, or something I'm, like that, registered, not, registered or something like that. I'm not a hundred percent sure on the ins and outs. I've I've sort of only tagged along a couple of times, but yeah, I mean, I do believe there is quite a bit to to sort of get into it properly. Mm. Look. Watching your stuff on video, um, you hunt well, not, not not a different country, but you certainly hunt different country than most Queenslanders. You know, there's, I mean, for a start, there's often snow on the ground. So that's, you know, you know we, we get excited. Look, mate, I don't know if you know, but in Queensland, about three and a half hours from, from here in Brisbane, there's a place called Stanthorpe that every five or six years gets this kind of, spattering of sleet and snow-like stuff and when that happens there's like a caravan of people who <laughs> race up that hill just to kind of go oh look snow, snow. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know the, the whole town's booked out and you know and there's loads of it they're literally having punch-ups in in motel parking lots to see if they get the last room just to see snow but where you are you know it's serious alpine country and, and that really to me is is very appealing but again it's a really significant different type of hunting mm. and, and that's and where does most of that when when you're filming that kind of stuff where is that mostly happening where are you doing a lot of that you know that snow country alpine hunting yeah it's just sort of up in around that sort of 1400 meter elevations because because when there's real heavy snow dumps i try to get off the tops because well, typically in my experience, the deer don't like too much snow. If, if there's enough snow where they can sort of still eat under it, they're not too bad. But when it starts getting too deep and too hard to move around in, they they definitely drop elevation. So okay, and 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 there's in those in that you know there's obviously samba, but there's also fallow there as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I've seen quite a few fallow here <coughs> snow as well in in state forest public land. There's quite a few spots there where it snows down. Same thing around that 1,400, 1,500 metres. And, yeah, you can go out and sometimes see fallow deer and brumbies and samba sort of, you know, all in the same vicinity, which is pretty bloody cool. Yeah. So, again, that's something, uh, well, I've seen brumbies, but I've only seen them in, in well, I've seen brumbies in the, in the high country, you know, 
on holidays, but I've never hunted in an area where they were they, in the high country where I've hunted where there's been brumbies is again the complete opposite, which is central New South Wales in, in, in outside of Pilliga there. And they're in, you know, shockingly horrible conditions. So it's a very different, it, lo it looks very different. Um, yeah. and I'm sure the experiences are very different. So that state forest, how does that work? How does that work? How does how, how does state forest or public land hunting work in Victoria? Uh, so basically all our state forests, which you can sort of access on, there's an app we use called More to Explore, and that's got all our, all our state forest and legal national park boundaries. And what I typically do is cross-reference that with Google Earth. So if I'm looking for new country, I'll basically screenshot them and overlay them together and and work out sort of where's legal where's not legal and yeah on state forest you can go in there you don't need to book anything you just go in there and it's a free for all you can shoot as many deer as you want and it's happy days mm. the only thing and then is, sorry mate you go i was gonna say the only thing is uh, and i think new south wales is a little bit different in terms of they've got to book a block or however they do it on their our licensed public land but yeah over here we just have to deal with other hunters sometimes like sometimes you might be planning to go to a spot and get there and there could be could be hound hunters there there could be other stalkers or whatever there may be so sometimes you've got to have a few backup plans especially long weekends that so there's been multiple times i've gone to camp somewhere and there's been other people hunting there and even some of the places i backpack into i've run into blokes backpacking as well so and in places you wouldn't expect to see people. I've always uh, believed that if it's if it looks good to you, it probably looks good to a dozen other people that are also having a look at Google Earth and layering maps and the like. Um, but you do you do you always hunt with Remy? Um, generally, yeah, yeah. yeah so then you're you've you've got to be selective on locations based on where deer hunting dogs are allowed. Different to hounds, I understand. Of um, I've had a couple of trips down there and I take my dog. And um, so there's uh, there's areas you you can't hunt with a dog. There's yep. areas you can hunt with a deer dog, listed breeds. And then there's hound hunting. And everyone can hunt in hound hunting land. Yep. And anyone can, uh, people without dogs can hunt in deer hunting, deer dog land, but no one else can hunt in the national parks or the areas where there's That's no right. allowed. So, yeah. Um, Got to be a bit careful with your zoning. Yeah, seen. and the national park areas are also you're only allowed to shoot deer, so you're not allowed to shoot foxes, cats, dogs, anything else. Oh, it's really just deer. Okay, so yeah. state forest is, is yeah. basically state forest is any feral, but yeah, national parks is just deer. Yeah, isn't that interesting that they won't let that you nail a feral? <laughs> like yeah, a, that makes like a cat, right? Yeah. Oh, wow literally like the worst feral out there yes that's right uh, look, there's a cat eating you know like a uh, a parrot oh, leave that line there's a sambra over there that's Dang. right <laughs> yeah you know, thank you eco warrior uh, <laughs> that is that is bizarre i did not know yeah that. i didn't realize that i didn't uh, realize because a cat like... a cat's one of those animals i'll ruin a deer hunt for any oh, day of the week. i won't do it for a pig and i won't do it for a goat and i won't do it for, well i might do it for a dog I'd definitely put a seven mil up a cat's backside if it comes anywhere near me. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
I'm here. <laughs> this is a this is a common conversation, Tony. But basically, every to me, every hunt is a pig hunt unless there's no other pig. There's no pigs there, and then I'll shoot a deer. So, or if it, it starts with deer and pigs that turn up, then it becomes everything. Everything for me ultimately ends up as a pig hunt. So, it's got commoners' taste. That's it. <laughs> that's it. I love them. All right, so. So, that, so you're uh, that is really weird. I, I did not know that. And now to get the there is no is it is it a license down there or is it just basically you register as a hunter? You've got to have your game license. So that's it. But is that a licensing process? To, that's just to, a pay pay to get license. Yep. That's it. So basically, it's almost like a registration. You kind of go in and say, "Give me one of those," and, and away you go. Yeah. Yeah. The the. I think the hound hunter ID and the duck IDs, they're a bit more involved. Yeah. There actually is a test that you've got to do. But in terms of just deer hunting and stalking and even uh, like stalking with a dog, not a hound crew or anything, but just stalking, yeah. say, a, a white hair pointer, there is a list of breeds that are, that are acceptable, but there's no tests or anything involved. You're just free to go. Okay, so if you're if you're you know if you're a rabbit shooter, you're going to go into state forests and and those kind of places. What's what's uh, requirements around um, daylight hours? Does it all end at night? Is there any lights shooting under lights at all? Not on state forests, no. State forests, so private private only. That's it, because uh, in in with the R license now, there is well only for pigs though. Um, there is, there is, there is different times, I, I, I believe, and I know they're also. I, I think they're actually also considering things of like um, other other pest species at night time. But yeah, that's, that's in the in the pot. But that's really quite interesting, eh? That they say you're in the national park, only deer. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, especially. And like we're we're also down here, we're having problems with with helicopter culling and that over yeah. here at the moment as well. Like some of the the spots I backpack into, I got a call from a mate the other week, and he said he backpacked in there, like, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, and found six carcasses. So that's mm. not great for it's not real motivating for some of my backpacking spots, but it just means mm. I'm going to try and find some spots where the where the choppers haven't been hitting. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? That uh, I was, I just saw recently they, you know, the, is, that, is it GMA down there, isn't it? Released their annual stats, and you know, deer hunting numbers were down like sixty percent, something like that. And they made some really oblique reference to, you know, it may have something to do with COVID or something like that. It may have done something to the fact that no one's been allowed out of their house for nine months. But anyway, um, <laughs> we won't, you know, we won't draw, we won't jump to too many conclusions. But it was some, even like it was still like something like sixty thousand were shot. Yeah, and I would say that's probably very conservative. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, there's always one of the you know issues that when you talk to people, GMA and 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 GLLU in New South Wales is that you know ultimately it's an honour system. Someone's got to say I shot a deer or I shot this or I shot that, and you know. That's right. And it's not like there's a board where you kind of your name gets up, so people are not going to brag. So yeah, there must be. It, it, it would be not unreasonable to expect that some people don't report what they do. So um. oh, there's surveys uh, uh, 
not the greatest things in the world. I'll just say that. So I don't even know if some of my surveys have gone through because yeah. they are and a bit right. complicated. <laughs> All right. So you're um so you've talked a lot about backpack hunting and I don't think um, we're going to try and arm wrestle spots out of you, so uh, don't be too concerned about that. Uh, we've only got like two two subscribers, so you won't be given too many secrets. So you're welcome to to tell us everything. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep it a secret, I promise. No, um, but I am interested in like because because I've taken groups down there uh, not because I have any experience whatsoever in hunting samba, but I have enough confidence to have a crack at something different and bring a few people along. You know, and we'll we'll leave home in uh, in Toowoomba, and some coming out of Brisbane. Uh, you know, we'll leave at lunchtime. We'll roll into the to a bakery somewhere around six a.m. and then into camp by eight o'clock, and off we go for you know a week to ten days. And it's it's a great experience. Um, the first time we went in, um, we were in and around the Bright area, and yep. uh, look, had a great experience. Um, you know, my my very first hunt and my my first half an hour after driving all of that distance and having no sleep i walked straight into a stag and i was it, it, it was big um and it was dark forest and it was a dark day and he was a dark animal and and i had nothing more to do than just stand at him and look like an idiot because i couldn't raise a rifle i was dumbfounded that he was so close and he was right there and it was something i'll never forget and on that trip i would have bumped into probably 10 or 12 animals um yep. but they were well and truly in front of me uh, I got my first experience of being honked by something, you know, up there and really putting the wind up me, sounding like a freight train. Like, it's just an incredible experience and something, you you know, if you haven't been a part of, um, you really can't um, describe it at all. Um, but we, we bumped into a lot of animals. The next trip back, we went to a similar area. The place was dead. There wasn't a wild animal. There wasn't a, a fox. There wasn't a wombat. There wasn't a... You know, there were there were no birds, there were nothing, and it was as if the whole valley had been completely wiped out. Um, and we stayed there persevering for quite some time. And then in the last few days, we jumped valley systems and bam, we were onto them again, um, which was great. So really, we're not really sure what happened in that. That was in the Buckland. <clears throat> not exactly sure what happened in there, but uh, anecdotally, there, there's been a, a lot of contract shooters going there and, and, and various different things. Um, but that level, you know, you were talking about 1,400 metre elevation. I think Brighton and the Buckland Valley are in around 300 metres. Um, so, you know, that's a different type of hunting. Again, I imagine that's right down in those gullies and on the fringe farm country. Yeah. You're, um, if you're backpacking, that says to me that you're really chasing antler. You're chasing chasing those trophy stags. You don't backpack in to carry meat out. That stuff's by <laughs> the road, right? Yeah. Um, you've got to be keen or you've got to be new. If you if you're putting a backpack on to go chase a samba <laughs> and do it any justice, but um, so so I'm quite keen to understand you know if we were coming from Queensland and we wanted to you know do our Google Maps you know we hear names like Bright and Buckland and Carryong and you know there's the major river systems that go in there as well. Um, tips for the for the uh, the humble Queenslander if we were trying to find a, a, a spot to research or look at. Can you give us some tips on, you know, you've already said 1,400 metres is, you know, what are we looking at there? Is that because there's high plateaus or you're really in some some mountainous country there? You know, what should we look for um, as we're planning trips like that? Uh, I would I would say it probably depends on whether you're chasing sort of any deer or a large deer. 
I think mm. that really is what it boils down to. So the, the higher elevations, the you know, the more alpine area, that 1400 metre mark, you've got all that really fresh clover and that coming up after the snow melt and quite often the stags will go up there to cast and then they'll grow in their velvet. And that's that's the sort of area I typically am going to to look for something big and that's where I'm backpacking into. But if, if you're just looking to, to shoot a deer, the uh, the lower fringe country, anywhere on private boundaries, same thing I'm talking about with overlaying Google Earth with your with the Mortal Explore apps and you know your zonings. One of my biggest things was when I was first sort of starting getting into Samba was hunting public land, but right on the private boundaries. So typically, especially around this way, we'll have fire breaks that have been dozed in. Mm. on the state forest side of the private property and deer will cross those fire breaks to get to the private for when they're feeding at night so if you walk those fire breaks at last light or first light you'll catch deer coming in or out so there's been times where i've seen 30 samba on public land literally crossing from private into the public land now you've got a video about that haven't you yeah, so I, I'm sure I can remember. You wouldn't know what it's called because that's actually that. I, I I do remember seeing something where you're basically looking, you were looking down this this track, and the, the deer are moving back and forth across the track. You've mm. that, you've got video of that, haven't you? Yeah, we'll find that. We'll find that video and chuck it up yeah, here so, so that, that we can link it. reference I mean, to that's it. That's the kind of thing, you know. That's the kind of thing that. Someone's going to go 16 hours and drive down there and kind of go, okay, this is this is a kind of a, this is a tip. That doesn't have to be that fire break. It just has to be find a fire break, find find that transition comp, country, and then find yourself an, a, a lane to look down. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic, mate. That's the kind of thing that you know really helps people out. So yeah, and especially especially tracks like or fire breaks where it's inaccessible via vehicle if mm. you can find ones on google earth where you can't see like car tracks and that going down there if you just drive around and explore fire breaks there's you know there's a lot of good hunting to be had and even some of the gullies coming in off those fire breaks will will have wallows in that because quite often water will sit down in those gullies right near the private and and you're perfectly legal to be there mm. yeah the the country we originally hunted on the first trip was um uh was just behind you know a bit of land off the off the main road yeah the the farmer there let us have access up his fence line just to to get in behind it and they had a fire break between their property and i know exactly what you're talking about we saw a lot of deer or heard a lot of deer in that area we probably didn't cotton onto that we were spending more time just heading up you know if we walk further we're going to find more right but apparently if you stay close if you put the spotlight out on the paddock at night time, there's, there's, there's 10 or 15 deer there. So, you know, you've just got to sort of wait and be patient. But, you know, 100%. sometimes we're not. Yeah. And look, honestly, you know, the groups that come down, they want to experience Samba, hunt, samba hunting. Uh, you know, just being just being hogged by Samba the first time, like I said, is an interesting experience and a frustrating one for you fellas that are doing it all the time, I imagine. Um, but just seeing them to start with is enough. Um, and I don't think too many of the guys coming with us and girls um, were too fussy on whether it was a, a stag or a, you know, or a meat deer going away. It was just part of the, you know, the club experience. So, but then, you know, there's some that do want to go and chase a decent stag 
and get in amongst that. You know, if you're going back season after season, you're talking about, um, you know, up 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 higher. Um, you're talking about snow melting, you know, and the clover growth, things like that. So you what you're in early spring, September, October sort of time frames when that snow's melting off or a bit later. Yeah, I, I normally sort of find it starts firing right about now. Okay. Uh, I typically my favourite couple of months to hunt samba is generally October, November. I find that a lot of the sort of lower dwelling deer, there's quite a few ruddy stags. And then in the high country, April, May is generally my favourite month to be up in the high country. I mean, it can always vary, but over the years, that those sort of two times of the year just seem to be when I see more stag action. April, May in the high country? Yep. Just before oh, yeah. the snow's really belting. Yeah. yeah, that's cold. So, yeah. Um, yeah, watching a lot of Samba, talking to people, What's why is the walleye so important? It's like their it's like their little communal area. But having said that, I've I've never had much luck hunting wallows. And even like I've, I mean, I'm not a huge trail camera expert or anything. I've had quite a few trail cameras out of wallows before, but trying to pattern sand is very difficult because especially stags because they can. They might be visiting the wallow once a day or every second day, and then if the hinds stop cycling, then they might nip off and go somewhere else. Like they're just very, very, very difficult to pattern. So I, I used to hunt wallows a lot and just sit over them, and it never, never really worked out that well for me, to be perfectly honest. I'm kind of glad that you said that because I've, you know, there's, up, you know. Hunt on dams, hunt the dams. I've never actually had much luck hunting a dam, but I've been told by plenty of people that they, you know, that this, you know, it's this bonanza of hunting. So, yeah, and I think that's what it is. You know, obviously the water is a, a significant component of what they're doing, but what you're doing in a way is limiting your opportunity. Saying, okay, I've got ten hours of hunting, and I'm going to put all my know put it on all red that they're going to turn up here when i just happen to be here waiting and they're going to come in mm. a certain direction with the wind being right and all that so, so and saying that and saying that though if you're if you're on one of these trips that we're talking about and you're there for you know seven to ten days you, you, you know if you're a patient man and a betting man you'd probably do okay sitting over that wallow and over that 10 days you'll probably get a munter that shows up in the end right but at least you'd probably you'd probably see it over that time period. Um, for me, yep. the the wallows no the wallows are a place to 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 tell me that there is activity in the area, and then you let the dog go and sort it out because they tend to pick up the fresher sign off the wallow and something that they're amazing at. They can pick up the scent if there's five deer in there. If they pick up the scent of the the one that they think they want to follow, they can crisscross six or seven other animals' scent. It's like a fingerprint. They don't they don't lose that. That tra- it's incredible, incredible to watch. So, um, so, so, so that's just a piece of sign. I think you're right, Mark. I don't have the patience to sit on no. on a wallow, but geez, I get excited when I find one. If I if I drop, well, we were going, we were supposed to go down this year. You know, well, actually, last year was supposed to be my first trip. Then, then it was this year, and so maybe next year. But yeah, I, I can't drive 16 hours and hunt 10 days. <laughs> sit still. <laughs> You might as well tip me in that wallow and cover me up with mud and leave me there. 
Uh, I'm not going back home, Bob. The so, other difficult thing with wallows is, uh, and there's one of the spots I've actually got a trail camera. I need to go get off it now. But within probably that about 500 meters square, I know there's about four or five wallows. Mm. So, and a lot of people probably in that spot, even if they hunt that spot, they may not know that they might put all their time in one wallow yeah. and not realize there's four others right nearby. Yeah. So it, you can definitely limit your chances if you're sitting on one but like you said Ian if you if you sit on that for 10 days you're probably going to see something and probably going to get something whether it's going to be a giant or not who knows but who knows yeah <laughs> the, the the other thing that um, absolutely amazed me about these animals um I was coming down off a off a <coughs> off a hill mountain on my way back to camp and you you could tell it was you know it was good bedding country and I was trying to take it as quietly as I could. I was on my own before I even had the dog. And I came down and I just sort of sat and watched and these two hinds stood up and they obviously winded me and off they went. And uh, But but the, the stag held his nerve. Like he hung out. He, he didn't he didn't leave. And it wasn't until I took another sort of 10, 15 minutes to go and have a look at where those hinds, what the well, hinds, does. What are they, hinds or does? Hinds. <laughs> Shit. Uh, where the hinds were, um, that stag moted. Like, and the speed and itch, it went downhill into the creek. I, and I tried to follow its tracks and, you know, your heart's pumping, you know, as, as it does. It took me 15 minutes to cover the same ground. It took about three seconds. Yeah. Like they're incredible. And they've got these big coat hangers up here that get caught on everything. Um, that's off to them, man. They, they're an incredible beast. Really yeah. are. Yeah. They're, they're like bulldozers when they take off. <laughs> Very fast bulldozers. Yeah. So, you know, as we said, if you're looking to go down and uh, you wanted to, to, you know, experience deer, staying at the lower levels and doing that, you know, looking for that fringe country, um, staying at that low, lower elevation, you, you'd actually, you know, you'd be relatively successful and it wouldn't be too too arduous and too much of a challenge. If, you, if, if for whatever reason you wanted to go the flip side and you wanted to do the uh, you know the high country style hunting. So, what kind of preparation do you put in to go up there? It honestly depends on how long I'm going for. Sure. Like, I, I'm probably very lucky in the fact that some of the spots I go backpacking into are only a two-hour drive away. So, some even less. So, I. I can go up there for just a day trip. I don't have to backpack in. I can literally go in and go for a hunt. And if I'm not feeling it, I can walk back out and do it again the next weekend. So it's, it's one of those things that probably depends on, yeah, how long you want to go in for. And so when you when you do the longer style hunts, are you using are you, are you base camping or how, what's your approach, or do you do you camp and move your gear or how, how do you go about it? Yeah, normally if, if I'm up there for a few days like with a couple of mates, we'll normally take backpacking gear and swags and we'll sort of just play it by ear. Occasionally we might backpack in for a night and then we've still got another night or two. If we want to walk out, we've got the swag so we can move areas. But, yeah, we typically will move around a fair bit because some of the backpacking spots that I have, if I walk in there, and I don't see a deer on the walk in. I'll generally won't stay the night. I'll I'll get out of there. Okay. It's, it's, so either, not, it's either firing or it's not. 
So you're not really base camping, you're really uh, kind of exploring as you go. Yeah, pretty much. Even though, like, I mean, I've hunted some of these spots for years and years and years, kind of like what Ian said, sometimes you'll go in there and, and not see a deer. And then if you jump into the next system or, a you know, a valley over, they might be over there. So it's, it just, can just vary so much. But I don't like putting a heap of time in if there's no fresh sign or if I haven't bummed a deer or anything on the walk-in, it's normally a good indicator that I could spend a lot of time in there and not see much. Yeah. Okay. And with that, are you are you on the move? Are you glassing? Are you thinking, okay, I, I know where I want to get to, to glass a system, a gully, a face or something like that, or are you uh, in more heavy cover and so you kind of you you're exploring as you go so how does that what does that kind of play out for you like or or does the dog lead the way <laughs> or does the dog just do all the all the thinking uh depending where it is yeah that the dog will do do most of that for me but i mean most of the spots i go to uh are spots i've been to that often i sort of know where there's much happening i know where the wallows are i know where the rub trees are the preachers are so i can sort of go straight to those spots and be like okay it, this is hot or it's not you know that the deer are using it or they're not using it and if i've got remy with me i'll look at her body language see if she's picking up any scent and yeah sometimes sometimes it's just a dud and yeah i'll like i think jay and i we walked into one of my backpacking spots uh it was sort of just as it was starting to snow, I can't remember what month it was. And we walked in there with full intentions to, to stay the night and we didn't even put up a deer. We had no interest from Remy and yeah, I put a, put a trail camera up and then we walked out and we ended up camping in the swag at another spot. I think we saw about eight deer the next morning. So it was well worthwhile us moving. Okay. And do you, when you're there, are you seeing, um, I'm quite interested in understanding, you know, the, the, the fallow versus samba. Are they are they together? Are they really – is, is there a clear delineation between the two or or is that kind of all – you know, how is that playing out? Are they, are, are they kind of melding together? Yeah, I generally don't notice too much uh, issue between the two. Like very often I've seen them feeding on the same planes or faces. Oh, Okay. Hmm. So it's so it's rather than kind of it's a samba area or it's a fallow area. You're actually getting that crossover, huh? There's definitely there's and there's probably becoming more of both. Yeah. In areas that I used to generally only see fallow, I'm starting to see more samba, and now in areas I used to only see samba, I'm starting to see more fallow. So that and they seem to like seem to be very intertwined. Doesn't they don't seem to phase each other too much. And have you seen any reds? No, I haven't personally, yeah. but I do have mates that have shot them in close proximity, like to where I am, which is exciting. Because <laughs> yeah. um, one of the areas I hunt in central New South Wales, they've been waiting for the fallow to come through, and basically the drought. They and this is not not the hunting fraternity. This is the farming fraternity. Said that you know. The drought's basically holding off, and and now they're they're you know they've had significant rain. They expect those fellow to move because fellow do seem to 
to move a lot uh, pretty quickly you know if the conditions are right they'll move pretty quickly so it's interesting to see that kind of that you know that fallow migration within the, within those areas and i watch um i think it's called into the mountains yep yeah a guy by the he goes by the name of daz who i think is daz hawkins yeah he he's I've, I've chatted him a couple of times um uh some of the things like what was really interesting is a couple of on his videos is he's actually encountered pigs and uh, and it you know it's quite quite a laugh to watch him encounter pigs because it's like pigs oh my god <laughs> so uh, yeah so have you seen any pigs on where where you're at uh not not like close by but i do i've got a mate that shot one that wasn't that long ago probably about 15 minutes from where i live okay so there is the odd one kicking around um, but yeah for the most part i've got to travel to, to find them yeah doesn't sound like it's worth the trip down mark well no it's just you know it's just like that extra added bonus you know <laughs> yeah look at that well, if i saw I was hunting the red block a couple of weeks ago and I shot a wild dog, you know, it's just a bonus. So, um, which is another thing I noticed uh, some of the videos that I've watched about hunting in, in, you know, down Victoria, there is, there's often wild dogs around too. Mm. Yes. In fact, there's, there's often, there seems to be a lot of wild dogs down there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like a throwaway deer hunt for a wild dog because, uh, well, we, we get $120 bounty for wild dogs down here as well. So it's, that's good motivation to, to throw away a deer hunt as well. But the farmers are very happy if you shoot wild dogs. Mm. Even, if you, even if you're on sort of state forest near a farmer, you'll, if you probably, in a lot of cases, if you shot a wild dog near his farm and you went over and told him, you'd probably get access on there. Because, yeah, especially sheep farmers, sheep farmers around here have huge problems with wild dogs. They've got to have their electric fences all working properly. And luckily, lately, the the dog trapping side of things has been sort of going really well. They've got a, a really good dog trapping team in that around my area now, and it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue as it used to be. But sort of around here, there was multiple farmers that sold sold out of sheep just for the wild dog problem amazing that is isn't it? and that's it because you know as i said a couple of videos off some they don't often see the dogs but you can hear them howling or that like that you know um and you know it's something that i encounter regularly but not like frequently but you know um it's interesting to see it down that country because um, that country looks hard to hunt, and I, I would say it would be a very, very difficult thing to, to get a shot on a wild dog. You'd be, it you'd probably would worth throwing away a deer hunt for a wild dog in that situation. Definitely. Uh, yeah. All right. Hey, I've got a couple more questions about their habitat. Um, so, if you're, you're searching Google Earth, you're looking at your more to explore app. You've decided you go and chasing stags. Yeah. Are you getting into areas? where the the trees are thinning out up the top is that why you're going a bit higher for elevation obviously that's why the clover is coming through because it's got more sunlight yeah you're busting through out of that thick bush that you see down at the farm fringe so yes. you've got to find places that are accessible like that 
<coughs> something that might be worth talking about is um, there's some wild stuff going on up there, right? Eh? Um, yeah, um, you close the roads when the snow comes in. Yep. You hear all sorts of stories about people um, cycling in or hiding caches of gear up there, and like this stuff goes on, right? It it does, yeah. I've cycled in a few times, and we've uh, even walked in behind gates before, and that that's actually that that tip there for for anyone coming down or planning to do a hunt is not a bad one. Basically, some some gates will have tracks around them where people have driven around them or whatever. But if you can find a gate where it's obvious no one's driven around it and you want to walk in behind it then uh, that's a great way to cover a lot of ground because typically, I mean, as you guys would be aware, you can walk very quickly along a road and if there's a little bit of snow or whatever on that, you can still tra travel a lot of country and then you can drop in off different ridges and that that no one's potentially hunted for, for months and months. So that is, yeah, that's something I've done before as well, just, yeah, walked in behind the gates. But I have cycled in before on State Forest, I uh, cycled in behind the gates with Remy and she had to run beside me. <laughs> oh, so State Forest because you took Remy. I was going to ask why only State Forest you've cycled behind. It's the dog, the dog yeah. that keeps you out of the national parks. So um, is it you can have access but just not vehicle access type thing? Yes, yeah. It's a safety thing, isn't it? They close it because it's dangerous to drive these. Yeah, tracks, and, that the and it can make a huge mess of the track as well. Yeah, when you've got the snow melt and that, and a lot of track. Is... <laughs> and you've got some bloke who's patrol with thirty fives wants to see how hard he can go. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, so so that's cool. So so that's a, a picture of my my mind. You see a lot of the the hunts on YouTube these days. Um, you know, people are getting there and you're almost able to look from, you know, across a gully onto another side and you've got clear visibility. Yeah. Yes, it's a tree. There's, there's stuff there, but I've not encountered anything that looks like that yet. It doesn't sound like I'm high enough coming up out of the Bucklands or out of, you know, Brighton places like that. It's a lot yep. lower and it's a lot thicker. <coughs> Excuse me. Makes it a bit more of a challenge. The old spot and stalk technique, um, they tend to get the jump on you a bit earlier. Um but I'm assuming then that the sign that you're looking for, regardless of where you go, is going to be the same. So I'd be interested, you know, you rattled off a couple of terms that some of us might know, some of us won't. But, you know, um, you know, we've talked about wallows. Um, preaching trees is probably something that a lot of people aren't familiar with. There's a couple of specific trees that um, these things, like there's a native cherry tree or something like that, that, um, that yeah. they, can't, they can't leave alone. Or, you know, what, what are some of the things to be looking out for? Well, they, <laughs> unless you don't want to give away all these secrets, Tony. No, no, that's fine. They they definitely love their cherry trees. Like quite often, especially yeah, sort of in the lower country, you'll be walking along and there'll be a cherry tree that's just been absolutely destroyed by stags. They just love rubbing cherry trees and rutting around cherry trees. But preach trees, uh, generally it'll be a tree sort of coming out of an angle on a bank or anything like that and there'll be like this well-used pad and that's where the stags sort of come up and they'll stay on their back legs and they'll rub all their glands and everything all over the tree and so it's leaning it. back over them isn't it yeah yeah 
Yeah, but it's it's like very obvious that you you often see mud and that on the tree if the stag's been wallowing, and it's it's definitely more of a stag thing. Like I don't know if anyone's got trail camera footage of Hines doing it. I don't. I haven't seen anything personally, but yeah, there's a lot of great footage of stags preaching mm. on trail camera and that. So yeah, if you sort of see that, and then there's also like rut pads where where stags have a natural a fight, and you can sort of see where they've dug their antlers and that into the ground and been carrying on. So, and generally the like the rut pads I've found have been close by to preach trees. Right. Okay. And um. What about their their food of choice? What do they browse on? What you know? Are we looking? You've, you've said clover. I've got that one written down about five times. Um, but what what other things are they chasing? Are, are they onto bracken fern? You know, new shoots like that, or you know, what are they after? Yeah, I've seen them eat bracken in the lower country. I've I've seen them. They love blackberries. Oh and yeah, you hear that? Yeah. Any blackberry filled gully, fallow deer as well down here. The, there's quite a few sort of systems I hunt that have got a lot of blackberries in them and you'll regularly see Sam Brandfellow in amongst them browsing away. Bloody blackberry. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that stuff is nasty. I bet your dog doesn't like it. My dog hates it. No, she's not a huge fan. She mm. probably she probably doesn't mind as much as me. I had to crawl through the blackberries the other day to get that, that last tag I got and that was, I don't think the dog really worried about it, but I didn't like crawling through them. <laughs> no, I bet you didn't. No. So they're after that, um, yeah, blackberries and the clovers. The other thing we saw um, um, was some wild pear trees and things like that around that seemed to be getting a fair bit of carnage against them. Yeah, right. I, I haven't actually noticed that myself, but it wouldn't surprise me. Oh, cool. All right, well, that, that puts a pretty good picture together. In, in the alpine areas, are they in the the heath country, or are they did they did they stay away from that, or is that, or are they looking more for an open an open patch or plain? Uh, honestly, varies deer to deer. I've seen them in in all areas, but purely on ease of glassing and and hunting, I'm sort of more looking for the the the, the faces I can glass like regularly there'll be places that you can sort of walk out and you'll just pick them up with your naked eye on yeah. the faces. Like, especially when that sun hits them and they're bloody bright orange and stand out. Like, yeah, that definitely, definitely helps. And it's, it's not that thick, lower level country. So, and it's because it's so steep, you can just see more of it. Like there, like you yeah. said, there's still trees on there. But the deer, you're sort of more seeing it as an upright deer. You're not looking, mm. you know, directly yep, down on it or anything yeah. like that. It hasn't got any everything breaking up its outline. So, and, and same thing in the more semi-open country in that sort of subalpine. When you're walking along, if you see anything horizontal, double check it's not a deer back because that that's yeah, that's a big thing when you're walking along everything's vertical if you see anything horizontal chuck your binos up because it could be a deer yeah okay so you're you're um you're saying that you're on open country that you can glass how how often are you within shooting range of these things when you find them or are you really spotting and then having to try and make a plan for later in the day or waiting for them to bed or you know what's your attack method uh 
Well, nowadays, and a lot of people are doing it, uh, getting into the long range game. So mm. basically, like I, I shot a really nice stag early in the year. I think that was at 640. And there was no way to get closer. I, I would have rather gotten closer, but I had the capabilities and the rifle to make that sort of shot. And that's what I'm sort of, I mean, most people now, even backpackers, like people backpacking in, nearly everyone now has a rifle that they're pretty happy out to a K. That's a big shot. Definitely a big shot, and it's not <laughs> what you want shot. to be taking. <laughs> that is a big shot. I don't think anyone wants to shoot that far, but it definitely it definitely gives you the edge in that country where it's it's not that easy. It's like some of your valleys that you could be you know five hundred meters to a thousand meters apart that you're glassing, so it's extremely difficult to try and work your way over there. You know, for an under five hundred meter shot. So it's 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 actually. In a lot of cases, easier to have, you know, to have practiced and just sit down and be comfortable behind your rifle and, and make that shot. Mm. So it's not it's not for everyone. And there's, there's... That, that, that's crazy. I, I literally just, <laughs> I just just reviewed a new scope, and I was really quite happy that I could hit four hundred comfortably with it. <laughs> but, oh, this, is, this is really good. Look at that. There's Bam. a big difference between two and four hundred meters. <laughs> bang you know oh that's firm that's not bad all straight out of the box 400 yeah well there you go yeah that's good holy moly <laughs> yeah so well that begs the question then for those that are taking six eight nine thousand meter shots <laughs> uh, let's talk about your 640 meter shot for a moment what's the setup what are yeah. you comfortable shooting out to that distance with my current current go-to rifle is a 300 PRC. It's a Christians in Arms Ridge line. Ah, oh, nice. Yeah. Got the Night Force NX8 on it, and it's weighs four kilos, scoped with bipod, so it's very lightweight. But it's still, yeah, still capable of those sort of distances. And and I shoot at those distances a lot. Like, yeah, on my, on my parents' farm, I've got a permanent shooting range set up and. I can go up there and make make sure everything's still bang on, and you know, especially when you're shooting at a small target at that sort of distance, when you when you've got a samba in front of you, which is a very large deer, like it's a big target. It's uh, you've definitely got a lot of confidence sort of behind you when you make those sort of shots. Hmm. It's like you it's a bloody postcard, isn't it? Here it comes. <laughs> But it's it's not for everyone. Like there's, there's a there's a lot of people that aren't into that, and that that's no. like there's. Well, there. I think there's there's a lot of people that would like to be into that, Tony. That yeah. um, realize when they go and have a crack at it at a range that it's it's not a matter of just lifting the scope up a little bit more and having a shot. There's a lot more to shot um, than just pulling the trigger, and people need to recognize that. Um, yeah. And yeah. YouTube. YouTube can show how easy it is. Yeah. Right. Um, like I, I've got a, um, a 7mm rim mag with a 6 soy BDX auto, auto ranging scope on it. Yeah. And, you know, even with a, a device like that, it puts you within the ballpark, but anything out past sort of 500 odd metres, there's, there's an error of tolerance that you've got to be comfortable with. 
Um, but you know, beyond the precision of the the weapon and, and the the rifles are certainly capable of it if you've got the right caliber and you've sorted your rounds out and you know what you're doing, that's cool. But then there's the bloody wind. Yeah. You know, and there's yeah. there's all of these other elements. Um, you know, the difference even here. So I'm I'm sitting at uh, where am I now? 700 meters above sea level where I am now. Even dropping down to Belmont in Brisbane. Uh, changes your point of impact by an inch. Yep. Just the altitude difference. Now, you're talking 1,800 metres from someone who's coming from Brisbane that thinks he's got it sorted out, shows up and it shows up at 1,800 metres and thinks he's on zero. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you're not allowed to re-zero your gear when you get there. Like, where are you going to go if you don't have a range or something? You're not supposed to do target practice in the parks. Yep. Um, so they're, they're just little things to think about. If you think you're going to have a crack at long range shooting at a samba on the other side of the thing, yeah. it's um, there's a lot to it. Yeah, yeah, like Victoria, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I've got the the binoculars that take all that into account, so they they make it a lot easier for me because they take yeah yeah altitude and air pressure into account no matter where I am. Yeah, and then yeah. they their corrections based off that, so it definitely does help. But, but there's still, regardless, there's still, like, plenty of places for, you know, for people to bush stalk and have those sub-100 metre spots, like 100 metre shots. But you're still in the high country in that more open, nicer-to-hunt area. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, one of the guys that I spoke most about, Samba Honey, he, she's a 35-wheeler. Yeah. In, in a lever action. So he's... <laughs> Not shooting at a thousand with that thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's definitely not. Have a wry smile on your face if you saw him backpacking off in the distance, wouldn't you? <laughs> oh yeah. So there must be, you know, the, the, it's 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 very, you know, the the the, the variances in in hunting must be significant. Yeah, definitely. Like, there's you know, there's quite a few guys that try to keep it you know, more on the traditional side with the lower power scopes and sort of sub 300 metres, I would say. And then you've got people that are sort of trying to push the limits with with capabilities of gear in themselves. It's, yeah, it's just all open to interpretation, I guess. On yeah, look, I mean, people frown on it, but I mean, you know, and, and certainly you can frown on it if it doesn't come together and the person isn't you know, isn't prepared to, to make the shot and, and, and is still operating that, that way. But there's also the reality is is all of that, you know, it's that old all boats rise with the tide, you know, that makes everything better. Like in the UK, for instance, um, the 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 way where where you see this in the UK is, is with how far they're starting to shoot birds out with shotguns. Yeah, uh, it it they are stretching and stretching and stretching that out further and further and further. You know, high pheasants and stuff like that. You know, they're getting shots that you know most of us kind of go, what you get? That's a sh and what? You know, holy moly! So, I I I I, I admire the, the long range because ultimately it, it's you know if you're good at it, it doesn't come. It doesn't. You, you don't. It just doesn't. Something you pick up on a weekend. You know. You're working at it. You're, you're, it's something you're certainly developing over time, and you're learning more and more about your gear. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, I to me, I don't, I, I, I appreciate all types of punting. I mean, I'm not into the long range because I'm simply not set up for it. And the majority of my hunting is never long range, you know? Yeah. Hell, you know, I, I've taken animals with shotguns. At that, so I'm, I'm at that range. I'm at the opposite end of the scale. And I remember I saw, I saw one of your videos where, you know, it was, you know, bang, and he went, holy moly, that's some distance. But, of course, the animal still goes, boom, still drops out like, you know, it's been hit by a bolt of lightning. So it's still an effective, it's still an effective kill shot. Um, yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with generally in, in the long-range sort of scheme of things, the animal's not alert. Mm. And a, another thing I like about that is you can really pick your shot and mm. you know, you're not just bumping a deer and taking a, a scrub cutter at it kind of thing. You've, you've got the time. <laughs> a scrub cutter. I'm going to get that engraved on my, my Ruger Scout scrub <laughs> cutter. <laughs> Always on the lookout for a, a podcast title. I think I found it. That's right. The whippersnipper. <laughs> you just haven't heard that one yet. No, I haven't. But I think I know what no. a scrub cutter is because I think I am one. Uh, <laughs> I've never heard it described so eloquently, a scrub cutter. See, one of the blocks I hunt up here in Brisbane is it's a small block. And so I actually have to limit my shots because you know i can't I, I you know i have to be mindful of where i'm shooting like a couple of weeks no, no, a couple of weeks more than about a month ago I, I was just watching these reds and they were just on the skyline I just, and i just couldn't take them because yeah you know, where where that shot is going and i was just hoping they'd just kind of come down a little bit and give me a backdrop but they didn't do it so Away they went. They're at about two hundred, but they just wouldn't. They just wouldn't step into a shooting position. Yeah, that's so, the lucky know, thing about having a bit of access and time, Mark. You can, you know, you can go back. Yeah, well, I'm sure, right. Tony, you've had heaps of those experiences where you so just, I'm, yeah, it's I'm, not quite on. I'm Next time, on maybe. Mm. To be honest, I'm there on Friday. <laughs> I'm back on Friday. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I can do it. Oh, I'm free on Friday. That's right. The scrub cutter. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, all right. Okay. Well, um, so I, we've asked you a whole a whole bunch of questions. Um, uh, we're still with the uh, the Queensland uh, punter in mind coming down your direction. Uh, what haven't you? What haven't we asked you? What what little tips and tricks might you give someone? Um, I don't know where you live. I'm not going to ask where that is because I know now within 15 minutes of there, there's good hunting. So you better not give that one away. Um, but if you were to send us into other, some other poor schmucks land a long way from you and, you know, that you might know about, that you might send us, what sort of general areas um, would you would you send us to if we were coming down or is, or is that a little bit rude to ask? Um, and if it is, that's cool. Um, are there any other little tips and tricks and things that, that we should consider before making the 18-hour drive? Uh, oh, I mean, I, I'm in East Gippsland, so... There's obviously deer around here. Yeah, write that down. <laughs> just just uh, get the yellow page, white pages out there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm already tracking his IP address. Don't right worry about it. <laughs> but you've just got to support the local businesses. That's no worries. That's, the, coming. that's the repayment. <laughs> oh, basically, I mean, nearly anywhere around this area, has if there's a patch of bush there's probably going to be a deer in it 
it has pretty much gotten to that point like especially in the lower fringe country like I, I we talked about going up higher for more of a trophy deer you go up into the high country you're going to probably see not that many deer you, you could spend a week there and only see a few deer but the chances of there being a good stag is higher than if you'd focus down in the yeah. lower country but in the lower country you're going to probably see a lot more numbers mm. So I would say, like for yeah, if 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 I was suggesting to Queensland or anyone else sort of coming down or planning a long journey to come hunt, if they're just wanting to see deer numbers, to to focus on those, the back of private properties and the boundaries, making sure they're on the right side of the fence, obviously, sure. or or even you know, a lot of farmers are quite friendly. You just never know if if you see them in the in the farm. Yeah say good day you know there's there is definitely still private out there to be to be gained access on for sure so okay so and with that i mean you've got so you come down as we said if you want to see deer and you want to increase your chances of seeing deer for first as a you know more as a learning trip stay in the live fringe country you know Try and get where you can see, as you said, so on those fire trails and things like that. Yeah. Be October, active. November is when you said earlier. Yeah, October, November. For, for stag activity, for down lower, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Good to know, mate. Good to know. That where there is a lot. Just a different mentality to the, to the bush stalker. And look, a lot of the hunting that we do here, you know, the reds and the fallow are, you know they're they're grazing. You know they're they're bedding up in the bush and they're coming out onto the farmland and that's what they like to do. I've noticed yep. that samba do that, but they're also quite happy just to hole up in the bush and and browse in there and not come out onto the farming country. So, you know, I don't know if that's a, a time of year. Uh, I found that it was more hinds that were doing it uh, yep. with yearlings that they were you know just fattening their condition back up. It didn't tend to be the stags that were doing it. Maybe they're a bit more cagey. They're just Definitely. sitting back a bit and, you know, waiting for their chance to go for another ride. But it's um, yeah, their, their habits are different. I was surprised to hear you say that um, the, the difference between um, Samba and Fallow and the habitats between the two were not as um, dissimilar than I thought they'd be. I, I really thought they'd be polar opposites. Mm. Uh, but that's that's yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's only more so. There's there's a couple of sort of high elevation areas where they're intertwining. When you start getting really high, it's only only Samba that I know of. Mm. But there's a few spots that I hunted around thirteen fourteen hundred where where there are both on the plains. So, and it's generally more fallow deer, but yeah, occasionally there'll be there'll be Samba out there with them. But especially down in the lower fringe country areas, I'm noticing more and more fallow and samba yeah sort of intertwining yeah that's awesome yeah that's really interesting because you know the, the, you would you would think as as ian alluded to they'd, they'd be but i suppose it's because fallow is so adaptable oh, okay. you know, yeah. so that's what it is they're just going well that's where the grazes that's where i'm going type thing and it's away they go they're they're an incredibly adaptable animal yes mm. and do you have an opinion on um the minimum caliber for samba 
You're, you're firing a reasonable size projectile there, but what, what do you think is a minimum? The, well, the legal minimum is obviously the 270. So, I mean, I, I believe that, you, you know, you've got things like the 6.5 PRC and 6.5 Creedmoor and that, which I think would adequately take down a Samba, but that's not what the law states. So it, so it is what it is really. Um, yeah, yeah I, okay. I, I really like I used to use the seven mil rem mag for years and I've got the 300 PRC now and I've shot them with 308s and 3006s and 300 wind mags and in all honesty a lot of people probably overcomplicate things with caliber it really doesn't matter what caliber you use I think your bullet choice and your your point of aim is are the two critical things bullet weight and and speed and all that has a has an effect but i think ultimately it's it's the bullet type at what speed and where you put it okay interesting um where is your preference of shot placement are you trying to knock it through the spine neck shots or are you taking out the engine room what's what's your preference my absolute favorite shot is high heart low lung very similar to like a bow shot yeah and when I first started sort of getting into hunting, I more opted for a higher shot, sort of up near the shoulder. The The problem that I found with that shot, and quite a few mates have had this as well, if you hit any higher than that, you're in no man's land. And if you only get yeah. one shoulder, deer can run a long way on three legs. Yeah. And if you've only clipped top part of their lungs or anything like that, they can go a long, long way. Uh, neck shots, I'd don't know whether you guys were aware, but the stag I shot was it last weekend or the weekend before. I called him Big Brows. I shot him last year in the neck, and I literally watched him fall over, and he kicked a oh. few times, and then he got up and ran away. I've seen that before. There's a triangle on them where you're going through nothing but muscle, and it it it, it paralyzes them short term. Yep. And then people go up thinking that the thing is gone, and it literally gets up in front of them. You see others that see them come to life on the back of utes, things like that. Yeah, there's that paralysis spot that people quite often hit when they're neck shooting. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that. High heart, low lung. I'm trying to picture the anatomy of a deer and how that even works. Well, the, the lungs are sort of quite large and there's a point where the heart sort of goes in there. I'll have to do my research. But... Yeah, I, I definitely like that shot. Sort of lower down in the lungs. Yeah, mm. it's generally generally around halfway up the deer. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say where 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 the the darkness of the the, the foreleg tends to have a that shadow effect. Yeah, where the crease is. Yeah, yeah. that's it. you're about there, aren't you? You're... Yeah, pretty much. If a deer's perfectly broadside, I'm pretty much straight up the front leg and yeah. halfway up. And that's it. Basically, it's like a bow shot where most yeah, like people shooting it under, basically like you're shooting it under the arm. Yeah. yeah. Well, you want those lungs. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. They can go a fair way, like you say, on three legs. They can also go a fair way once you've punched their, their heart. So that doesn't kill them straight away. Yeah. yeah. The, lungs, the lungs certainly um, drop them well, pretty quickly. Yeah, it's, it's always good when you see bubbly blood. When you when you find your shot site and you see some bubbly blood, that's that's mm. a good sign. Mm. 
Yeah, and typically, and typically, like they will run after that shot. They won't just yeah. do the the pole axe drop and drop and die. But I, I actually get worried if I see a deer just drop on the spot because in my mind it's still alive and it's just been in some way or form as a shock factor sure. and it's dropped and I either need to get another shot in it straight away because it's going to get up and run off or I need to get over there and sort of, you know, finish it off. Sometimes it's already done, but it's just in my head, yeah, if, if I see a deer drop straight away, I don't automatically think it's it's finished. I generally worry that it needs a finisher. Yeah. Okay. And oh, I'm assuming that that shot then, when you hit them, they'll do that thing where they'll kind of crunch up and then they'll spring forward, and that's when you do yeah. that. Yeah. Sam will often do a jump. Yeah, they'll 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 kind of yeah, you see that themselves and bang for it. And I, that's whenever I know that I've I've done a good heart lung, you kind of get they. It's kind of like they swing. They do this. They crunch in on themselves. Yeah, straighten up. Yeah, you need Yeah, because I, I shot a um the last red I shot a hind, you know, a few weeks ago. There was three of them, and they, and it was really long grass, and I, I shot, and then I saw them running. I went, oh okay, but then I realised it was only two running. I went, oh okay. Something's happened here, and sure enough, it it did it, it did it went straight down. It um it went straight down, but yeah, yeah that's um and the and the one I shot before that, when I I got a little bit of video on, I um I actually got too close, you know I I, I kind of got too impressed with my own stalking skills, and I got too close, and the angle was all wrong. And I thought I can't see the bastards; they're just there. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> boom, and you know, bang. And shoot it at forty minutes. What was it? Scrub cut it <laughs> at forty meters because I had literally the angle was all wrong. So yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, I think we've probably bled you dry of uh, of samba tips. I've got a lot, so I'm super keen to have another crack at this as soon as COVID lets us. Uh, although we're into October, November already, it's going to make it difficult. Might be an April May stag backpacking trip. I'll have to go climb some mountains and get fit for it. Um, but that's my goal. Um, just before we let you go, you've you've obviously you spent a lot of time chasing Samba. You've got a pretty active uh, YouTube channel, from what I can see. I assume you're on Instagram and those sorts of things as well. Yep. Um, how do people how do people find you? Uh, my Instagram name's just at Tony Gillahan, and my YouTube's name's Tony Gillahan as well. So yep. just easy done. But yeah, definitely uh, very active. I'm pretty much out there every weekend, or I try to be. There's not many weekends I'm not in the bush. That's great. And what what is on the bucket list? Like so many samba hunts start in Kia. I just want to go hunting samba. You know, I've got <laughs> it, and I'm not doing anything else. Um, I hear you hear that a lot. What what do you want to do outside of the samba world? Uh I've. I've got to get a good buck for the wall, and I want to get a local buck for the wall, like a fellow, fellow yeah. buck. Yeah, I've sort of been hunting them for a long time, and I, I, I passed up quite a few when I was younger, hoping they'd get better. And then you know, someone else had shot them, and all those sort of things. So I was chasing a really good one earlier this year, but he just kept giving me the slip. So 
But it's got to be a local one because that'll mean the most to me. Like I've been invited. Isn't that incredible? You've been you've been shut down, locked down, told to stay home, and and you finally get out. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah walk of his Victoria's like, I don't understand. They're different. <laughs> No, it's more so that it'll just mean more to me. Like, I've been invited to places where there's definitely better fallow deer, but it's just sure. I, I want to get one close yeah. to home just because that's that's where I've done all my chasing of them. And when I do get one that I'm like, I'm going to put him on the wall, it's going to, like, mean the world to me sort of thing. So, yeah, yeah. Other, other than that, I'm really keen to go back to New Zealand to chase tar again. I absolutely yeah. loved, loved tar hunting over there, so... Very excited to go back there. Hopefully next year. Yeah, you haven't chased big reds or anything over there. No nah, reds. I have. I've never even hunted them, so I haven't. Probably haven't got that experience yet. Maybe after I chase reds, I'll get addicted to them. But at this point, it's just kind of samba and tar. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that first time I got, like I said, the first time I got honked by a samba was one I'll never forget. The first time you're in a valley and you've got reds roaring all around you, something that you won't ever forget. I guarantee it. It's yeah. a very unique experience um, and something you can do when you head to New Zealand. You can sort of pack both of those things into one trip. That's something yeah. we'll talk about <laughs> in some detail on a podcast shortly. So uh, stay tuned for that. We might be able to pass on some tips in the opposite direction. No. Look, really appreciate you, you sharing. I, I, I reckon this is really the kind of thing that a lot of, look, I'm one of them, a lot of guys are going to go, you know, that's what we've been asked. We've been asked somebody can give us some on the ground and about the differences because when you see it on a video you know you're only processing what you're only seeing what the what the the video the guy who shot the video is showing you and often you know you're only seeing parts of that anyway so yeah. getting an understanding about how to be you know to take the steps to get down there and when you when you do do the big leap how you can actually turn it into something worthwhile so and seeing at least seeing an animal and putting yourself in a better position to get an animal there's a lot of guys who are going to very much appreciate your time and sharing so for those listening they should bombard the hell out of your facebook uh, facebook page and your youtube channel and because there's some great information on there thank you very much okay. no, we'll um we'll be down there shortly and um, East so. Gippsland is the direction we're going to head. We're going to carry on from our usual spot a little bit further down. And uh, we'll let you know and come and share a campfire and a beer with us. We'll have yeah, a bit more of a yard there. Definitely stop in for a beer. All right. Okay. Good stuff. Thanks, Tony. No Thanks, worries. Thanks for having me.